Section five of Take It From Dad by George G. Livermore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section five Letters of December tenth and January twenty seventh. Lynn Mass, December tenth, nineteen something. Dear Ted, I always thought J. Caesar Esquire and one Virgil wrote Latin, but when I was in your room last Saturday afternoon, I saw you had copies of their books in English. Now I'll admit that an English translation is the only way I could ever read those old-timers. Latin is as much a mystery to me as the income tax, but one reason I am sending you to Exeter is so you can play those fellows on their home grounds with a fair chance of winning. I always thought you were a pretty good sport, Ted, and I have always tried to teach you the game, and to play it square. I still think you're a good sport, and the only reason you are using those trots is because you haven't stopped to consider how unfair it is to J. Caesar and company. I have a sneaking sort of liking for those old birds. J. Caesar was the world's first heavyweight champion, and in his palmy days could have made Jack Dempsey step around some, and as for Virgil, he could make words do tricks even better than I. W. W meaning I, Woodrow Wilson, so it was a sort of shock to me to see you giving them a raw deal. When you get right down to cases, son, your lessons are one of the few things that can't beat you if you study em, so it's pretty small punkins to try to rig the game against em. A shoemaker can buy his leather right, and figure his costs correctly on an order, but the buyer may get cold feet and refuse them, or the unions may call a strike or one of about a hundred other things may happen to knock the profits higher than one of Babe Ruth's home runs. With lessons it's different. Study them and they can't beat you. You wouldn't expect much glory if the Andover team you beat had been made up of one-legged men. What about the handicap you're making the all-Romans play under when you tackle them with a couple of trots in your fists? There's another reason I don't want you using trots, and it's because it's liable to get you into the habit of doing things the easiest way. Now, anyone is a boob if he doesn't do a thing the easiest way, provided it's the right way. But he's more of a boob if he does a thing the easiest way only because it's the easiest way. And using English translations on your Latin is like paying number one prices for a block of poor damaged leather. It may be easier to get the leather, but when it's made into shoes and you begin to hunt for the profit, you find it's gone A-W-O-L. I don't remember ever having told you about Freddy Bean, but speaking of doing things the easiest way reminds me of him, so while I have the time I'll tell you. Freddy's pa ran a little store in Epping just across from the railroad station where, according to its sign, he sold books, magazines, newspapers, and stationery. And as he owned his own house, and had a thrifty wife, he managed to make a living, although Epping was not a literary community. Pa Bean was an inoffensive little fellow, who always wore a white tie with his everyday clothes, and loved to work out the piano rebuses in the newspapers in the evenings. He had advanced ideas on politics, was a single taxer, and today would be classed as a radical. Then we used to call him half-baked. Freddy was a good average boy, and likable enough except for his one bad habit of wanting to do everything the easiest way, and believe me, 
he carried it to extremes. He used to sleep in his clothes because it was easier than dressing in the morning. But his ma walloped that out of him. Then he had the bright idea of putting a sign with the price marked on it on most of the articles in his pa's shop, and going to the ball-game, when the old gentleman went over to Bristol Centre Saturday afternoons on business. This worked all right at first, for the Epping folks were honest. But one Saturday some strangers carried off about one hundred dollars' worth of goods, and Freddy got his from his father, and got it good. I could tell you a lot about the messes Freddy got into trying to do things the easiest way, but the supra is hanging around with a lot of inventory sheets, so I'll have to cut this short with Freddy's prize performance. One summer morning Freddy's pa and ma went away for the day, but before they started Half-Baked led Freddy out into the yard, shoved an axe into his unwilling hands, and ordered him to cut down an oak that stood close to one side of the house, and was growing so big it was shutting out a lot of sunlight. Now, there wasn't a boy in Epping at that time who hadn't had considerable experience in chopping wood, unless it was Sammy Smead, and he never counted anyway, except on the afternoon we initiated him into the Brothers of Mystery, and there wasn't one of us who didn't hate it. But Freddy loathed it more than anything else, principally, I guess, because there wasn't any easy way out. If you had to cut wood, you had to cut it, and that's all there was to it. Along about two that afternoon, a crowd of us boys bound for the swimming-hole happened by Freddy's house, and found him pretty limp and blistery. He'd only hacked about half through the tree, but I think his mental anguish was worse than his physical exhaustion, because, scheme as he might, he had hit on no easy way to fell that oak, and the job looked as though it would last till sundown. Freddy was a good diplomat, and he tried all the Tom Sawyer stuff on us he carried, but not a chance. There was not one of us who would chop wood when he didn't positively have to, and it looked as though Freddy was going to chop until the job was finished, when Dick Harris said something about blowing it up with some gunpowder his father had stored in a keg in his corn-crib. There was not one of us who would have helped Freddy cut down the tree, neither was there one of us who would refuse to help him blow it up. And Freddy, because he saw an easy way out, was the most enthusiastic of all. We did it. First we dug a hole about four feet deep at the foot of the tree, and buried the keg of powder after boring a hole in the top for a fuse. We packed the dirt down tight all around the keg, leaving just enough loose to run the fuse through. Then Freddy, as master of ceremonies, lighted the fuse, and we stepped back to wait the results. We didn't wait long. There was a roar, and we found ourselves on the grass in the midst of what resembled a volcano on the war-path. Dirt, stones, grass, sticks, and heaven knows what else were milling around us in clouds, and out of the corner of one eye I saw Ma Bean's geranium bed sail gaily across the street and drape itself over Mrs. Harry Brown's front gate. Glass was falling around us like shrapnel, for every window in the Bean's house shivered itself out onto the lawn. The tree, well, sir, it fell on the house, knocked off a chimney, and broke down the piazza roof, and the next day Half-Baked had to hire Jed Snow's team of oxen to pull it clear before they could even start cutting it up. 
I've a very vivid recollection of what my father gave me, and I rather think Freddy's was the same, only more so. In fact, none of the crowd slid bases for some time, and half-baked made Freddy cut six cords of wood during the next month. I don't know what has become of Freddy, but I have never seen his name in the headlines, so I guess he's still hunting for easy ways to do things, but you can bet he's left gunpowder out of his schemes for the last forty years. Now, Ted, you just mail me those trots. I'll enjoy them, and you give those old-timers a fair show from now on. It's not sporting, Ted, to pull a pony on them, for they can't win anyway if you don't want them to. Play the game. Your affectionate father, William Soule. Lynn Mass, January 27th, 19-something. Dear Ted, That notice from Professor Todd stating that you had been taken off probation was the most welcome bit of news I've had in a long time, and the enclosed check is my way of saying thank you. I knew if you once stopped fooling and got right down to cases that none of those old bestsellers like J.C. or Virgil could hold you for downs, and as for quadratic equations, your instructor writes me that if you'll take em seriously, you can make em eat out of your hand. Now you're again on speaking terms with your lessons, you can keep their friendship by visiting with them a couple of hours a day, and when they once learn you mean business, they'll follow you around like a hungry cat follows the milkman. There's nothing succeeds like success, whether it's getting respectable marks in your studies or selling shoes, and if you don't believe it, ask Charlie Dean. Probably you've always thought of Charlie as my star salesman, and you're right, but it wasn't many years ago Charlie couldn't have sold five-dollar gold pieces for a quarter, even if he gave a patent corn-cutter away with each as a premium. Charlie came to work for me right out of the high school, and as he was always willing to do a little more than his share around the office, I decided to give him a try on the road, where he'd have a chance to make real money. So when a younger salesman left me one New Year's, I put Charlie through a course of sprouts in the factory to be sure he knew how the heart of the hide line was made, gave him a couple of trunks full of new samples, and shipped him out to the Middle West. Charlie was gone three months, and he didn't sell enough goods to pay the express on his samples, but realizing a cub salesman's first trip is always his hardest, I swallowed my tongue and sent him out again. I couldn't understand it. Charlie was no loper, and I felt sure he was working hard each day, but he had no more success in persuading buyers to stock the heart of the hide line than old King Canute had in bossing the sea around. If he had done fairly well, I'd thought he was just green and would develop, but when he had been out six months, and his sales record sheet was as white as a field of new-fallen snow, I decided too much was enough, and wired him to return to the factory, for Fair Brothers were getting more solid in that territory every day, and I simply had to have distribution there. When Charlie arrived in Lynn, I was going to fire him, for I never believed in putting a man back in the office who has been on the road. He's too liable to be down on the house, and afflict all the other clerks with the same poison. But Charlie pleaded so hard to stay, I finally gave him back his old job, and as he showed no signs of being a troublemaker, I paid him no further attention. 
The next winter I had a hunch that women's fall styles would run heavy on calfskin, so I loaded up with a hundred thousand pairs of heavyweight cut soles, and patted myself on the back that I had put one over on the trade. A few weeks later the buyers made so loud a noise about V.C. Kid a deaf mute could have heard them. There I was, caught flat-footed with a hundred thousand pairs of soles stored in the basement, and the market on them dropping every day so fast I got dizzy when I tried to figure out how much I stood to lose. I tried to take a loss and turn them back to the manufacturer. Nothing doing, nor would any other cut-sole house take them except at a price that would have come near to busting me. Next I tried the manufacturers of women's shoes. Not a chance. Then, as the soles ran pretty heavy, I tried boys' makers. Again, nothing doing. I was getting desperate, for I had a lot of money tied up in those soles, and so far as I could see I was liable to own em for some time unless the sheriff took em. One morning I happened to think of Al Lippincott. You know his factory in Dover, the red one you can see from the station? Al makes a line of boys and youths, but he is the hardest buyer in the whole trade, a regular rip-tearing snorter, who begins to yell the minute a salesman steps into his office, and keeps it up until the salesman either wants to lick him or to beat it. I got Al on the long distance, and finally, after his usual outburst that nearly melted the wire, he allowed he was going to be in Lynn that afternoon, and would drop in. I went home feeling somewhat better, but while I was eating lunch the telephone rang, and I learned your ma had been badly smashed up in an automobile accident, and had been taken to the Salem Hospital. I never thought of Al again until I was going to bed that night, and then I was so worried about your ma I didn't care much whether he'd called or not. The next morning, when I rolled back the top of my desk, I found an order for the whole hundred thousand pairs of cut soles made out in Charlie Dean's handwriting, and billed to Al Lippincott at two cents a pair more than I had paid for him. I never asked Charlie how he made the sale, and he never told me. But when he asked for another chance on the road he got it, and knowing he'd sold the toughest man in the United States, he made good from the kick-off. I only mention Charlie, because when you were on probation, you were in the same kind of fix he was before he sold Al Lippincott. Now you know you can lick those studies of yours. I want you to crowd em so hard the teachers will mark down at least a B for you when you get up to recite. Your affectionate father, William Soule. End of section 5